All right. Um, all right, y'all. I'm just putting this on Zoom so we can record it um, for those who, some, so there's some people who can't make uh, every session. So just want to make sure that everybody has a chance to see what we talked about. Um, glad you're here. Welcome to the Table 101. I imagine we'll have a few others joining us uh, trickling in uh, as the morning proceeds. Um, we'll talk a little bit about uh, what we're doing today, uh, but can I pray for us as we begin? Let's pray. Compassion in God, we're grateful for the chance that we have to uh, learn today and to discern today. We pray that um, you would cause our conversation today to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, uh, that we could sense how you're at work in the midst of this conversation and in our lives. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. So a couple of books just to recommend, just to get this out of the way. If you are interested in exploring some of the stuff we're going to talk about today in a little bit more detail, one is the Book of Common Prayer. These are in the pews in the nave, in the, in the chapel over there where we worship. Um, this is the, we'll talk a little bit about this today, but this is the prayer book for the Episcopal Church uh, in the United States. And this has been the prayer book since 1979. There's all kinds of, you know, additions that they've made to, there's alternative liturgies and, and such. But um, this is a great way to learn about what it means to be an Anglican Christian in the United States, because every, like all the liturgies, all the, you know, everything about the church is basically in this book. It's just like open source, you know, anybody can get one of these. So this is what they look like in the pews. Um, this is like a little uh, nicer personal version um, that I have, but feel free to grab one of those. Just if you are, I mean, don't take one home from the pews. Uh, that's not what I mean by grab one, but you can find them online um, and feel free to grab one for yourself. Um, just make sure that you're getting the 1979 Book of Common Prayer. There's a lot of different books of common prayer. 1979 is the one to get, okay? So that's one book. The other book uh, that you might be interested in is this one, A People Called Episcopalians. As you can see, it's a very small book, uh, very easy to read through in a little um, you know, hour or so. And it's just a good introduction. I found it to be a good introduction to um, kind of uh, Anglicanism in the United States overall. Um, so that's going to be something maybe that you'd want to check out. So anyway, I'll have these up here. If you guys want to look at them, write them down. This one's only like $6 or something like that. Book of Common Prayer. Um, I think you can get for about 20 bucks. Something like that. So, all right. All right. Um, okay. So we're going to do four weeks of introduction to the table. This first week is about Anglicanism. Uh, as you can see up there, that is the wider tradition that the table is part of. Um, week two, next week, um, Spencer, Father Spencer is going to talk about sacraments and worship. And so Holy Eucharist, Holy Baptism, and just what it is that we're doing when we worship uh, at the table. And then week three, Father, oh, that's me again, sorry. Um, week three is going to be an instructed Eucharist. So we're going to go through our um, Eucharist liturgy, just step by step and talk about what we're doing at each uh, step, at each phase of uh, the liturgy that we that we pray every Sunday. And then week four, October 29th, Father Matt will be talking about um, all kinds of stuff, but discipleship and mission and leadership and some of the some of the unique things about the table um, that aren't necessarily uh, universally practiced throughout Anglicanism. Uh, and then November 5th, uh, which is All Saints Sunday, we will be receiving new members. 
So that will be an option for any of you who want to um, talk about what that uh, looks like. Um, and we'll also be doing baptisms. Um, and so we've already got a few kids who want to be baptized or parents who want to baptize their kids. So I'm looking forward to Sunday, November 5th. I think it'll be a really fun celebration for us. So, all right. So that's the over, overview of where we're headed. So um, the table, so we're going to, I'm going to, I'm going to talk a little bit about this and then I'd love to pause and we'll have a conversation and see where the conversation goes. Okay. And you've got handouts that have some of the notes that I'm going to talk about just to help you maybe, you know, track some things later. If you want, feel free to write on that as well. Um, so the table was planted as a church in 2015. And as I mentioned, in the coming weeks, we'll talk a lot about the practices, you know, that we want to cultivate here and the ethos of this local congregation. But what we wanted to start this first week was talking about the wider tradition that the table is part of, because the table is not just a tax exempt organization, um, you know, filed with the state of Indiana that we started so that we can have a bank account and worship together. Um, it like that's handy to have, right? If you're going to be a church, but that's not only what we are. Um, you know, according to the state of Indiana, that's all we are. But spiritually, the table is much more. And um, the way that we wanted to start was those four marks of the church that you have on your handout. The table is a manifestation of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And where do you guys, is that phrase familiar? Have you heard that? Yeah, we, we say it every Sunday in the Nicene Creed, right? We, we say that we believe in the one holy Catholic apostolic church. And so just um, a bit about that. So the table is part of that one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The one part of that mark of the church uh, means that just that Christ comes to establish one church. Not many churches, even though there are many churches, but there is one church is what we believe in. Now, you know, practically speaking, there's been all kinds of schisms, right? East and West in 1054, and then, you know, the, the Protestant Reformation, and then all kinds of denominations now, right? But we confess in the creed that we believe in one church. And so Christ came to establish one church, not many churches. Um, Jesus prays in John 17, right? That they may be one, just as you and I are one father. Uh, the one church is also holy, and this does not mean that uh, nobody ever sins once they become a Christian. Um, if you've been a Christian for a couple seconds, you probably realize that. Um, both other people sin against us, and we sin against other people. But holy just means to be set apart. Uh, so one holy Catholic apostolic church. Holy means that um, we're, we're set apart to be salt and light in the world, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 5. Um, so that's holy. Catholic. Catholic just means universal, doesn't necessarily refer to Roman Catholic, but Catholic means universal, which just means that the church exists for the whole of humanity. This isn't an ethnic thing. It isn't a regional thing. It isn't uh, something that is only good for certain kinds of people, but we believe that this faith is good for the whole of humanity, one faith for all. Many liturgical expressions, many cultural expressions, but one faith. So... It's one, holy Catholic. And then finally, apostolic. Apostolic just means that it's rooted in the work of the apostles um, whom Jesus sent, right? And so Jesus establishes his church by sending these apostles, and we believe in apostolic succession, which just means that as the apostles made disciples and ordained people for ministry, there is a, a line of succession that, that stretches back, that we're part of today, that stretches all the way back to the apostles and Jesus, okay? 
So that's what it means. That's, those are those four marks of the church. And the table is like our, our identity is rooted in the fact that we're not just making this up as we go. We are part of this long thing that has that, that began with Jesus, right? 2,000 years ago. Um, so that's the that's the first thing is that's the widest scope for us. Maybe we can write some of those words on the board here for those watching. The, the table is part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I think I spelled those correctly. Hopefully you can see them okay. Red, the red marker is not doing too well. So then going from that big uh, zooming out, you know, to everybody who confesses Christ, right? So Jesus is Lord as the confession of the church. And so we share that with uh, Roman Catholics. We share that with Eastern Orthodox. We share that with, um, you know, every Protestant denomination. Um, we, we share that with a lot of people, right? That we're all part of this one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now the branch of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church that we are part of is called the Global Anglican Communion which uh, is, we'll talk a little bit about how that got established, but just to know that it involves, um, last I checked, about 85 million people in 165 countries around the world. So we're part of that branch, you could call it, of the church. And so the word Anglican then comes from England. Um, and so we are, we are part of a communion that traces its uh, ancestry back to the Church of England and Christianity in England, even before the Reformation. So, um, so it refers to, then Anglican Christianity refers to a way of life, a system of doctrine, and an approach to polity, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but that just means how is the church organized and governed? Um, so it's a way of life, a system of doctrine, and an approach to polity for Christians who trace their lineage back to the British island, the British Isles. So the church obviously started on Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit um, came uh, upon the apostles in the upper room, right? And they went out and started proclaiming the gospel. 3,000 were added to their number, and it spread from there. The book, the story of the book of Acts, right, is the spread of the church as people proclaimed the gospel um, to um, the Jews in Jerusalem, and then eventually the Gentiles, and then, you know, the ends of the earth is, is the goal there of the book of Acts. And so that's what they began to do. They were proclaiming the gospel. They were baptizing. They were gathering believers together for communion, for prayer, and for mission. And Christians may have arrived, some people think, they may have arrived in England as early as 67 AD, uh, which is really early, right? So if we're starting from zero, <laughs> that's only, only about 70 years until Christianity may have arrived in the British Isles. Um, and so Christianity... The other thing about Christianity in the British Isles is that it seems to have developed a little bit differently on the British Isles than the rest of Europe. And so how many of you ever heard of Celtic Christianity? This is a, a manifestation of that. There's a little bit of a different flavor to um, Christianity as it develops on the British Isles, Ireland, um, England, those, those kinds of places. Um, and I, this is painting with a broad brush, but the Christianity that develops on those islands, I it seems to me, has a bit more connection to the East than to the West. And what I mean by that is that, um, so the atonements, the, the atonement, the metaphors for the atonement in the West were largely legal. It had to do with like, um, you know, you were guilty before the judge, right? That's what sin meant. You were guilty before the judge. But in the East, it's a bit more mystical. 
Yeah, uh, in the West, it has to you know do as Christ as judge, and the East, it has to do with Christ as the great physician. In the West, atonement um, overall, again, painting with a broad brush. Atonement was you broke the law and need to be punished, uh, but Jesus saves you from that punishment. In the East, it's viewed, and the early church, it's viewed a little bit more like you drank poison and you need to be healed. And that's what Jesus comes to do. That's what the atonement is, is healing for your poison. So we can talk more about that, but that's a little bit, a little bit of the flavor of how it developed there. And so this, you know, Christianity on the British Isles, again, it evolved through immigrations, invasions. How many of you are St. Patrick? Yeah. St. Patrick, this is about 432 AD. Um, he was a missionary and brought the proclamation of this one holy Catholic and apostolic faith to the barbarians, so to speak, um, the Irish Celts. And one of the features of his mission was that he did not force them to conform to the cultural expressions of Rome, but rather tried to make the faith sensible for everyday concrete common experiences of those people. But we'll come back to this. So there's, there, there is an instinct, I think, in Anglicanism as a whole to do this, to not enforce norms from some other place, but to discern what are the norms for us? What should they be here? Um, there's other saints and abbots uh, who led the church in England and in Ireland, St. Columba in the sixth century, um, Patrick, Columba, Aidan, uh, are others who shaped Christianity in, uh, in Britain. And then um, one date to know, if you're into the history, is 597 AD. There was uh, somebody named Augustine of Canterbury, who was a Benedictine monk, who came to Britain on a mission from Rome um, to convert the Anglo-Saxons. And one of the things that he was surprised to find that there was already, people had already heard the gospel um, in England. And so, um, but there, there, was a, there was already a Christian presence there in England, which was distinct from Rome. So um, a couple of key things here that I think matter for us. Patrick seemed to develop a life of worship that was not a transplant of Roman faith. They gathered in monastic communities for worship, and then from there engaged people, eventually planting indigenous communities as people were baptized. And then some of the key aspects of spirituality, there was, a, there was more of an emphasis on holistic faith of all of life being sacramental. We'll talk, we can talk about what that means. It just means that people experienced creation as, on the whole, communicating God to them and communing with God through creation. Um, was a, was a feature of what we might call Celtic Christianity. Um, they were organized in abbeys and monasteries around a rule of life with simple rhythms. Um, all that to say there's a long history in English faith of trying to find a life of prayer that's made practical for everyday life. That's a key aspect, I think, of what it means to be an Anglican Christian. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, all right, so let's talk about the Reformation real quick, and then we'll pause for some questions, all right? So the Reformation and the Via Media, which is the next uh, couple of things that we want to talk about. So I, I share all this in, in you know, um, the first part of this, because I think there's a common misconception that the Church of England was invented during the English Reformation. But that, it's not quite true, because Christianity obviously was present in England for a long time, and it was, you know... Um, it was part of the Roman Catholic Church for a long time until the English Reformation. 
Um, and so um, Henry VIII obviously wanted an annulment, which was a catalyst for a lot of the events of uh, the English Reformation. But it wasn't necessarily necess it wasn't necessarily the reason um, that English Christianity took the shape that it did, and the Church of England exists. So um, Henry's crazy personal life was one catalyst among many, in other words, uh, of a very messy history um, in the uh, in the English Reformation. Um, and the English Reformation developed in a unique way compared to the Protestant Reformation on the mainland of Europe. Um, this is a bit of an oversimplification, uh, again, but um, the ancient one holy Catholic and apostolic church had been rooted in um, four different sort of marks of unity. They, they talked about having one faith. Um, which just means the gospel, right? So one faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is expressed through the creeds. This is, you know, we have, this is why we say, when we, when we say the Nicene Creed, we say, we've heard the gospel read, now let's proclaim the gospel as we've received it in the Nicene Creed. It's this pronouncement of what God has done in Christ. The Apostles' Creed is the same way. There's also um, early councils of the church that describe what that one faith is, right? So this is the proclamation of the gospel. There is one canon of scripture. All the New Testaments. We're familiar with that, right? So one canon of scripture, which is our, um, as accepted by the early church. And interestingly, the faith that they'd received helped them determine what the canon of scripture was. It wasn't the other way around. If you think about it historically, the gospel preceded the New Testament, right? Of course it did, <laughs> right? The proclamation of the gospel was the announcement of Jesus' resurrection and, and his life and what, what everything had happened. And the, they used that gospel to determine what the canon of scripture might be. So, so there's one canon of scripture, one faith, um, one sacramental life. Um, that refers to um, the real presence of Christ in baptism and communion. So the sacramental life is communion and baptism. We'll talk more about that next week. Um, but they believed in the real presence of Christ there. And that was how the church encountered Jesus. And then one apostolic ministry. This refers to bishops, priests, and deacons. It's a threefold apostolic ministry um, ordained by bishops going back to Christ and the early apostles. Okay. So the, the, the great schism, you know, between East and West happened in 1054, um, which had to do with the authority of the Bishop of, the, of Rome, who is now called the Pope, right? So now called the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, that had to do with like how much authority does the Bishop of Rome have? And this is very similar to why the English Reformation took place. The Protestant Reformation, which is, you know, Lutherans, Calvinists, Anabaptists, all kinds of others uh, that, that, you know, trace their lineage back to um, these, the Reformation, they were essentially sort of throwing off Rome's influence and authority. So the Bishop of Rome was exerting authority over the whole church. And in England, as in other places, they were saying, I'm not sure that's right. I'm not sure if the Bishop of Rome should have authority over the whole church. And this, I mean, it, it, again, it was messy. It had to do with taxes. It had to do with whether you could get an annulment. 
you know, and marry, you know, marry your, uh, the person you wanted to marry. Um, so it had to do with a lot of stuff for, for Henry VIII. Um, but in rejecting the authority of the Pope, a lot of other Protestant groups ended up rejecting some of these elements here. So some Protestants then rejected bishops and priests and deacons. They said, we don't need that. We just need like ministers or we're going to call them pastors, right? So they rejected the apostolic ministry. They said, that's part of Rome's thing. And we don't want to have any, anything to do with that. The sacramental life, they turned from Holy Eucharist and Holy Baptism, went from being sacraments to being ordinances. Have you heard that word? They're, they don't communicate the presence of Jesus. They're just things that Jesus told us to do, to be faithful. So they, have, they, they end up sort of taking out the sacramental element. Does that make sense? You guys familiar with this? Yeah. Um, most of them kept the canon of scripture. That's one they did keep. But the creeds, a lot of Protestant groups rejected the creeds as well. They said those are additions or um, they, you've ever heard of sola scriptura? This, that just means like we're going to throw out all of this stuff except the canon of scripture. This is all we need is scripture. This is going to tell us how to be faithful to God. The difference with the English Reformation is that they kept all four of these things. They kept bishops. They kept the real presence of Christ in the, in the sacraments. And they kept the creeds as being important. And so they kept a lot of what Rome had, the, the, the faith that the one holy um, Catholic and apostolic faith, they kept a lot of those elements while also then rejecting some of the things that Rome had added to those elements. So for example, celibacy for priests, right? They're still in the Roman Catholic church. Priests must be celibate. Um, they, you know, the Anglican church, the, Engl the church in England uh, rejected that. And they said, no, priests can be married. Um, what's another one? I had a couple of examples. I can't think of one now. What's that? Yeah, penance, right. Yeah, yeah, those those sorts of things. And so, and you know, they reduced, they did re bring the sacramental life back to the two, um, we call them dominical sacraments, which are Holy Baptism and Holy Eucharist. But then there's five sacramental rites. So we kept the kind of the sacramental part of those rites, but we said they're not as, you know, this, the other things that the Roman Catholic Church considers sacraments like marriage, ordination, things like that. The English church said those can be sacramental rites, but we're, we're bringing the sacraments proper back to Holy Eucharist and Holy Baptism. So that's another example. Um, maybe another example is the, oh, I just thought of it when you said that, Valerie, but I can't think of it now. Anyway, there was some there were some things about the Roman Church that they said, you know what, we don't think we need to. Uh, oh, the authority of the Bishop of Rome. <laughs> I mean, that was part of you know, it was part of it is like, hey, Bishop of Rome, you have jurisdiction over Rome, and so go ahead and you know be the Bishop of Rome. But we have a bishop here in Canterbury for our country, and so you guys, you know, that's fine for you. We're going to have our own bishop, and so that was another thing that they they did reject, but they kept all four of these elements. Um, these sort of marks of the unity of the church. And so this is where we get to the word via media. This is why the English Reformation was called a via media. Via media just means middle road. And the, the way that most people think about this is that it was, it was a middle road between some of the more radical Reformation um, policies of the continental Europe and the Roman Catholic Church, okay? Um, and there is a historical tension between those instincts, even in Anglicanism today. So if you've ever heard the term Anglo-Catholic, those are folks who tend to want to keep a bit more of the Catholic 
part of it. Like, so veneration of Mary, that you can do that as an Anglican, but not all Anglicans do. Um, you know, veneration of saints, that kind of thing is, is a bit more considered Anglo-Catholic. Some Anglicans want to do those things, some Anglicans don't, and that's fine, there's a tension there. And actually the early years of the English Reformation, these two, um, they were on different teams and they murdered each other for a few years <laughs> over these issues, okay? Um, and so uh, we're great, very grateful that we're not murdering each other over those issues anymore. And one of the aspects of Anglicanism that I really appreciate is the, the sort of the big tent mentality that we, we try to stay together despite we have differences in how our spirituality works itself out. But we wanna, you know, in general, we wanna be together. Okay, so messy history there. Um, I don't know if we need to talk much more about it. Oh, maybe just to say this. So historically, why are there Anglican churches everywhere, right? If it was the Church of England, um, well, that has to do with the British Empire. So the British Empire, as, as the British Empire kind of went to the four corners of the earth, so did the church, because we, we got people, you know, colonizing various places in, in, you know, all across the world, and these people need uh, churches. And so the church went to those places, and as the British Empire began to, um, you know, dissipate, people, you know, proclaimed their independence from Britain, the Anglican churches that were there were established, and they just decided to continue to be Anglican. And so there, there's a lineage that gets traced back to England, even though um, there's not as direct a relationship as there once was when the British Empire was a thing. Question, Matt? Um, let me let me let me just say one more one or two more things. Then we'll ask. Then we'll pause for some questions. So that is why the Episcopal Church exists, is what I'll say. So England was here, right? And you guys heard of the American Revolution. <laughs> um, after the American Revolution, the establishment of the U.S. Constitution, the people who had been worshiping, you know, as Anglicans here, who traced their lineage back to England, established what's called the Episcopal Church in 1789. Yeah. Um, 1789, uh, it's right around, they established the canons and constitution right around the same time as the uh, Constitution of the United States. And that's what the Episcopal Church here in the United States is the Anglican, part of the Anglican communion traces its history back to the Church of England and Christianity in the British Isles. So I know that was a big download, but I think it's important for us to understand the wider group that we're part of and why we exist. Okay, so... Let us pause for questions. Lee. This might be a long discussion. Is it possible then to remove the history of the Anglican communion from colonialism? Yeah. Um, I don't think you can remove it. You know, um, I, th I think there is there's a strong, I think we have to discern it. Yeah. But this is a fascinating question um, that I think, I mean, you know, I'll just say personally, I've had, I've had to wrestle with that because I think there's an instinct that I had. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot of us have, I, I don't know if it's an evangelical instinct in particular, but there's an instinct to try to like reach back and find the pure, the pure church. Like what, what's the pure church where it wasn't tainted by politics and, you know, all these other the, the colonialism and all these other things. And I've, I've had to wrestle with that. And I don't think it exists. There's no such thing 
as the pure church or the pure gospel. It always, because of what the gospel is, the gospel is involved in our lives. And, you know, it's going to be messy the way that it works itself out. Um, and so I, I think, I don't think we can extract it, you know, from colonialism. I think we have to reckon with it. Um, I think we have to reckon with it. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have thoughts about it or? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would love to. Yes. What is the legacy of Yes. I think it, it creates this very strange tension that you know, the nation government has to be willing to throw in exist there. Yes. Very much still on the back to conserve the part of life. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's a that's a huge issue, I, I think. Um, and you're right, it's very it's very complicated. Um yeah, it's very complicated because I, I think I agree that there's a lot of colonial uh, a lot of colonial legacy that is not named as such in those in those places, yeah, which is it's difficult. Yeah, Dennis. Um, similar lines. Uh, when like, the uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Anglicans killed Puritans. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we killed each other. We killed, you know, Mennonites, killed Puritans. Um, yeah. Long bloody history. Yeah, so the Anglican Church in North America was, or I don't know the exact date, but I think it was started in 2008, officially, and it came out of um, some of the conflict and people leaving the Episcopal Church over issues of, this is an oversimplification, but pretty accurate, over issues of women's ordination and LGBTQ inclusion. So the Anglican Church in North America is that they, that, yeah, it's comprised of people who left the Episcopal Church, largely people who left the Episcopal Church um, over those over those issues. And it's kind of a, it's a conglomeration of a number of groups that have different interests. Um, we were, you know, the table was an ACNA church when we planted in 2015, but we were never part of it. We never left the Episcopal Church. So our situation is pretty unique um, in, I, I think it's the first church that's ever kind of gone that direction because we planted as an ACNA church and then are moving now into the Episcopal Church. Yeah. Yeah, Matt? Yeah, just a couple more things to ask your question. The Puritans were Anglicans. So the, the uh, eastern part of England is shared coast, and because of a pretty narrow stretch between like the rest of Europe, right? You see, you had, you had Dutch Reform people kind of coming over to England from the mainland Europe, bringing like Calvinism and things like that, and mixing it with Anglicans. So especially on the East Anglia, places like that on the eastern part of England. And so Puritan started as a renewal movement for a branch of the movement. And then, you know, the movement of the Catholics. 
So just here in work separate until English and Sort of Another thing is the Episcopal Church was founded here in the state because we had just fought a war with England and they weren't super keen on our gaining new bishops for us. Yeah. Like, so it wasn't like more of a matter of practice. Like, we need to ordain bishops, new bishops, and we can't do that because. We shot So we must now create our own sort of space yeah. here. Yeah. With more than fragment, very hard. Yeah. And because of apostolic succession being such a big deal, we couldn't just ordain bishops willy nilly. We need a bishop needs to ordain a bishop. And so um, there's a whole way that that happened. Scotland, we got one from Scotland. Um, because they were like, yeah, we hate the English too. You know, let's let's ordain some bishops in America. So that's my favorite part of the story. Yeah. The Scottish connection. Yeah. 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 Why is that your favorite part of the story? I don't know. I love just maybe it's all the Irish and Scots ancestors behind <laughs> me, but loving that if we just bypass the English. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. It's like, well, actually, we don't need English bishops. We just need somebody in apostolic succession. So, can I say one more thing? Yeah. Uh, uh, your question to me is connected to your question, Dennis, about the history of the ACNA and the history of colonial sort of African Christianity. Yes. There, there, there was a intentional sort of bonding the United together in the early African formation days. Of sort of disgruntled conservative people in the states and very conservative um, African Anglicans as well, and sort of banded together to start the ACA. So, definitely, in fact, Africa sent missionaries to the states in the 90s and early aughts um, because they considered North America to be bereft. Fun fact. Yeah. I'm still slightly confused about the Episcopal and Anglican. Sure. Sometimes it sounds like you have been interchangeably, but yes. Yes. Let, let me let me try to draw it for you. Yes, it is a it's a common common misconception. So uh, let's say let's let's do, let's do this way. So the word Anglican does not refer to the Anglican Church in North America. That is a specific group of churches that decided to name themselves Anglican, right? Or anyway, who knows Who knows the reasons, but I think I can guess, right? Um, so Anglicanism refers to any church that traces its lineage back to the Church of England. So the ACNA can claim that? Sure, they can. You know, the Episcopal Church can claim that? Sure, they can. The Anglican Church in Canada can claim that. The Anglican Church in Rwanda can claim that, right? So Anglican is a broad term that just means English, you know, and it has to do with this branch of, of Christianity. And so, you know, the early church, I can't figure out how to draw this super well, but um, let's say uh, Church of England, C of E, okay? Church of England, um, basically the Episcopal Church was a descendant in a way, right? Because there were Anglican churches here in America. Revolutionary War happened. England is not so keen to say like, well, I don't know, you, you guys get your own country now, so congrats. 
you know, good luck on the church thing, right? Um, and so we had, uh, you know, being the, the Episcopal Church, found a way to continue. That continued for, you know, from 1789, you know, down. And people left the Episcopal Church at all kinds of different phases for all kinds of different reasons, right? So 1928, the prayer book came out. People didn't like that. 1979, prayer book came out. People didn't like that. They're like, we want to do the 1928. And so they left the church, right? And so the ACNA is one of those groups that left for, you know, a variety of reasons. They don't like the 79 prayer book either. Um, and so they're, they're, they splintered off from the Episcopal Church. But all of these churches are angry because they trace their lineage to the Anglican. You know, the, the church does that help? Yeah. Yes. And and I might add as it's helpful, the like the Anglican communion is a definable objective thing. Yeah, that's true. Thing, but the as as we have become a globalized community and have been forced to reckon with the role of colonialism and what's holding us together, it's harder to define what it is that's keeping us together. It's much easier to be a community when Everybody had to do what they were told and bow down in the colonial instinct. But now that there's moved slightly away from that, not that it's all the way been redeemed, it's much harder to understand what the church in Rwanda would have in common with the church in Indianapolis. Yeah. So, what is it that keeps us in communion, which the beautiful aspects of Anglicanism are what draw me to want to be in that tension? Yeah. But there are some difficulties that come along with it. You know, why, why are we in together? We can't agree on this, or, no. yeah, yeah. So, so, so it, it is important, I think, to name the Anglican Communion are churches throughout the world that are in communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury, right? Go ahead. A number of African Anglican denominations. Sorry, I think there's something about this. That's fine. <laughs> Yeah. If everybody doesn't know me as the uh his the actual historian for the national yeah. Episcopal Church. It's a little intimidating to teach this fight with Lee present. I saw Lee come in and I was like, I'm really grateful to see Lee. Like, a little bit. Am I gonna say something wrong? So anyway, I'm a little tired about it. Good, fantastic. <laughs> Although I noticed it was you saying that and not Lee. <laughs> I'm sure there are ways that you, um, which I'm happy to have actually. So um, but the the Anglican Communion, technically, ACNA is not part of it um, because they left the Episcopal Church, who's in communion with. And so Rwanda is also in communion. But what's happening right now, and this is nerdy church stuff, but what's happening right now are big questions about what is the Anglican Communion and can it hold together? Because the ACNA and Rwanda have a lot more in common than Rwanda has with the Church of England right now. And so there's tension, a lot of tension. And, and you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury has an unenviable job. Yeah. But there's some point where the Episcopal Church like rejoins communion. Yeah, I'm not about that history. Yeah, believe me, though. It was the ACNA and other similar groups starting in 1979, the Yeah, I mean, when the Central Church started. So, uh, in seven, up until 1780s, there was just Anglicanism in North America, right? So, there was just the Church of England in the United States. There was no Red Bank Bishop that was Anglican in the United States. Until 
saying it's either even more than white, one over the sky, and more ordained by Scottish, Church of England, bishops. So those are the first two bishops in the Episcopal Church in the United States. Why wasn't the Episcopal Church It had never happened. So this was like the first of its kind of this revolution and politically the country moved away from England. And so they did have church that reflected the political reality of we are no longer praying for the power structure of the monarchy and king. We're praying for this new government that we have here, but we still want to be part of this tradition. Yeah. This Anglican tradition. Yeah. Yeah. You're saying that you've never heard of Cool. And yeah. so very shortly thereafter, um, Anglicans in America, what became America, became known as this thing. Yeah. And then the church of England was like, yeah, you know, I like this now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually the hurdy feelings stopped, you know, at some point. And they were like, actually, it's kind of cool, you know, like let's be let's be friends. Yeah. So yeah, Dennis. So uh mixed in all of this, um, and I'm glad this is a safe space where we can have the king the king plays a role in the church of england um but not it doesn't have any the king has nothing officially to do with the episcopal church or the anglican church in north america really um so even though you know when the queen died um you know we we have a history of connection with the church that who's you know whose head is the queen um, and so, you know, our bishop here in Indianapolis, uh, Bishop Jennifer, you know, she wrote some things um, about, you know, the death of the queen. And, you know, because of that history of colonialism, um, I think what she wrote was was very wise, but she had to navigate a lot of, I don't know if you followed any of it, but, you know, I, I think over here in America, most of us think of the queen as like, oh, how lovely, you know, the monarchy, that kind of thing. But there's a lot of places in like the British Isles that hate hate the monarchy, right? Because they have this history of oppression. Like the Irish, like rejoiced when the queen died. You know, they're like, oh yeah, the queen, like it, and she lived so long that she was actually directly part of a lot of their oppression. Um, so anyway, so Bishop Jennifer had a, a difficult task, I think, to try to honor our sort of history and connection with, but also say, we still want to undo this work of colonialism that has caused so much harm in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think that the one church is a, you know, we confess it in the creed, and I uh, believe that that's how things are going to end up. Um, but I think that in the meantime, as we, you know, as we walk through uh, the difficulties of living in the you know world and, and disagreeing about things that it's not it's not perfect one of the things i will say that i deeply appreciate about the anglican church and the anglican communion in general is that um of all you know if you think about roman catholicism eastern orthodoxy and anglicanism they're the three kind of branches of the church that embrace you know all four of these things you know i think in more ways than almost any other church does anglicanism is more open to those other traditions than are those other traditions. So Anglican, so for example, if you're baptized in the name of the Trinity in any church, you can take communion here. You can be in communion here. You don't need to be rebaptized to become an Anglican Christian. Um, our orders, our holy orders, our ordinations, 
uh, for Matt Spencer and I, we were ordained in the ACNA, but Bishop Jennifer, is she's not reordaining us when we come into the Episcopal Church. She's receiving our ordinations because we were ordained in apostolic succession. And that kind of thing would happen with a Roman Catholic priest who wants to come into the church or an Eastern Orthodox priest who wants to come into the church. Confirmations are also you know, seen as valid in those other churches, but it doesn't go the other direction. So if I wanted to become a Roman Catholic priest, I'd have to be reordained. Um, and so I appreciate that about the Anglican Church, where there is, I think there's an impulse towards the reconciliation of these schisms to say, like, I, we actually want to be one church. And here's a gesture of, you know, conciliation to that, to say, we're not the only true church. We see you, you we see your church as valid as well. Yeah. That's a really good question. It's, it's a huge question. Yes, um, I I think the one the one church, yeah. There there's all kinds of background to this. Some people would say you need all four of these to be the church, um, including bishops. Um, other people would say bishops are great to have, but you don't need them. You know, not to be part of the church. Um, I, I think at its core, it probably involves people who. Uh, have heard, have believed the gospel and have been baptized, you know, into the faith. I, I think that I would see that as you're, yeah. you're part of the one church. And I would just add to like, obviously there's a way of reading creeds that is us saying like, there's one holy Catholic and apostolic church and that's us. And and it has been read that way yeah. before, obviously. Yeah. But when we're proclaiming it as the good news that we've received, I think I think of it as when I when I say it as it's like bearing witness to the mission of God in creation. Like as somebody that grew up in a charismatic non-denominational church, I'm not like that's not the real church. I mean, I've become I've come into this tradition because it feels like the most faithful way for me to inhabit this being a follower of Christ today. Yeah. But not to say like everybody else has got it wrong. Yeah. I'm sure you could encounter people that would say yeah. that, but but there, but there are, I think there are legitimate boundaries, you know, um, and so, it's, and sacramentally, I think baptism is one of those boundaries. I, you know, I'd say, if you want to be part of the church, like, be baptized, you know, confess your faith and be baptized. Yeah, Lee? When you say that, you mean that when you Jesus, what God they do? I guess I'm thinking in the name of the Trinity, yeah, so. so. When you say the Trinity. <laughs> Explain Trinity. Yeah, I know. Um, well, I want to I want to honor our time. I love all the questions, but I want to I want to get to a couple aspects of how Anglicanism, the 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 ethos and flavor of Anglicanism today, um, that I think will set us up well for future classes, um, and that has to do with lex orandi, lex credendi, and the three legged stool of authority. Um, so again, I think the gift of Anglicanism, at, at its heart, is. Um, a life of prayer, a liturgy, if you will, a life of prayer that is grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ, um, revealed in Holy Scripture, and passed down through the church, and made sensible or practical for our everyday common lives. I think that's the gift of Anglicanism. I think that's what it has. To, that's why I'm an Anglican Christian. I see these aspects of it. It's like, this is a life of prayer that's rooted in the gospel given to people to to live out in their practical everyday lives that's the so i think the best of anglicanism is rooted in tradition but also in in context um so there's continuity with the historic church but it's contextualized as well for here and now 
Um, and so this, you know, this instinct, for example, when they created the first prayer book, it was it was uh, in English instead of Latin because they wanted to make it practical for the everyday person. They made daily prayer to be practical for people can pray this, you know, we can actually do this together because it's in the vernacular language. So I think that's the best of Anglicanism, um, that there's a priority of how over the what. So Anglicans don't have a pet theologian, you know, uh, like, I mean, pick on Lutherans, right? That like, it's literally named after the guy, right? Uh, or Calvinism, you know, literally named after the guy. Um, but Anglicans don't have that, really. We have some theologians that we look to, to kind of say, you know, these these help develop Anglican theology, but there's not a pet theologian. There's not a certain catechism. There's not a confession of faith besides the creeds. Um, it's It focuses on the how over the what. How do we live in, um, how do we live, you know, how, how do we live out Jesus' lordship in our everyday lives? This is why, incidentally, the fact that our, our book is not a book of belief it's not a confession of faith. It is a book of prayer. It's a book of common prayer. So that's what we mean by lex orandi, lex credendi. You should have that on your sheets. I won't spell it out uh, just for uh, just for time because I'll probably misspell it. Um, but lex orandi, lex credendi just means the law of praying is the law of believing. So the life of prayer gives way to what we believe. So praying is primary theology. So you want to do theology? Pray. That's theology. Theology is also reflecting our life in God, you know, and naming some aspects of it. But prayer is theology. What we pray is what we believe. Anselm said, we worship in order to know. So I think that there's a very Anglican instinct when people say, well, what do you believe? The Anglican instinct is to say, come worship with us. You'll find out. Like the Anglican instinct is come pray with us. Let's pray together and we'll find out what we believe. Um, so in other words, Anglicanism is a, at its best, a community of practice rather than a community of belief necessarily. Um, although we have beliefs, those are important, but um, it's, you know, it's a community of practice. So that's Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, and I could say a lot more about it, um, but in the interest of time, we will move on to um, the three-legged stool of authority. Um, this is, I think, important because it contrasts a bit with some of the traditions that a lot of us have come out of, where scripture was seen as like sola scriptura, right? This is the only authority. Um, and while that is, uh, we would say the scriptures are primary, but we also name two other sources of authority for us as we live out you know, our, our, our everyday lives. So holy scriptures is one of the three-legged stool. It's the word of God. You know, the, the, the catechism in the Book of Common Prayer says that God still speaks to us through the Bible. So we believe that the scriptures uh, as we read them and interpret them and preach them in community, we are hearing God speak. So God speaks through the scriptures. Um, how this happens is a big question <laughs> that we can't get into, but we believe that it does happen. Okay. But secondly, then tradition um, is another part of the three-legged stool. And this just refers to the way that the saints before us have dealt with issues of faith and doctrine and life and discipleship and practice. How have these scriptures been interpreted? Let's see how the church has interpreted these things, right? Tradition, uh, it, it guards and gives witness to the scriptures. So we understand the scriptures by listening to tradition. Does that make sense? We don't come to the scriptures just with like our own brains and then we're gonna hear from God. We have to listen also with the church and that includes people who are long dead, 
who have written about these things. So that's what that means to, to, to have tradition be part of that. Um, Anglicanism pays special attention to the first five centuries of church history um, uh, because a lot of things were worked out. We figured out what the Trinity was, you know? I mean, we didn't figure out what the Trinity was. We learned how to talk about God without committing heresy. Um, that's basically, the importance of uh, the Trinity is basically so that you can learn how to talk about God without committing heresy. So it's, it's important, you know, it's good. It's good to be able to do that. Um, and it, it also includes some modern things. So as part of the Episcopal Church, general convention is something that happens every three years where we uh, discern together. The whole church says, like, what, how do we, you know, do we need to make any changes to the way that we live together? And we are, every church in the Episcopal Church is subject to the decisions that get made at general convention. So that, I would say that's part of tradition as well. Um, tradition is not infallible, obviously. Uh, and it has to be continually reformed and interpreted, but it's part of the three-legged stool. The final part of the three-legged stool is uh, reason. And this includes common sense, um, but it also includes wisdom from the broadest scope of human understanding um, and, and, and personal experience. So it's, it's our personal experience, our reflections on personal experience. It's learning from things like science, right? So right now I'm learning a ton. A lot of us are learning a ton about trauma something that we haven't known about. It's a new field of research and it's so helpful, right? Now, is trauma mentioned in the Bible? Not in particularly, right? It's not mentioned as a thing, right? Just like artificial intelligence isn't mentioned. So we need though reason to be able to deal with artificial intelligence, trauma. How do these things interact with our faith? We need, we need reason and authority, or sorry, reason, tradition, and scripture. So um, those are, yeah. A few final things maybe about the Anglican tradition. Um, there's some stuff on the back um, of your sheet. I will just encourage you to uh, take that with you. Um, there are just a few things. I, I can't remember who wrote that up, but I saw somebody write that up, just things that um, he or she appreciated about the Anglican tradition. And I thought, you know what? I appreciate those things as well. So um, any final questions or reflections before we before we go? Matt. I have a final question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, the question is about colonialism and how do we deal with the one church with the diversity of things. Uh, I've noticed one of the draws we have to the diocese and the adolescent church is we have a, uh, a female black bishop who is fully aware of the white supremacy history of the Episcopal Church globally, but also here in town. Like, you can tell you stories about this, but some of the most beautiful buildings, buildings in the National Historical Register in this city are Episcopal churches. And they were built with money from the eugenicists. Like a, like a raging, raging white supremacist. And if a bishop who chooses to be here, because he wants to look for reform and faithfulness inside the white institution that needs to reckon with white history. So the impulse that I think resonates with me about that is I don't want to run from these laws. Yeah. I want to stand firm inside of the damage. I want to move the center of Chernobyl and clean up. I don't want to do that as a white man who's born once. I want to do that as a black female bishop who's doing that work already. 
So I think her impulse is part of our impulse as a church. And back to my imagination for how do we how do we solve our publicity in, mm -hmm. you know, when the year is this? Something yeah. happens. Yeah. How do we how do we solve that? How do we walk walk into the need for healing and rectification? Yeah, and the, 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 unique, the unique character of this diocese and this bishop um, made this move very easy for us. Um, it's not true everywhere in the Episcopal Church, but it made the move for us very easy to say like, oh, this is, there's a lot that attracts us to being part of this. Did you say so, easy, you think, uh, we didn't have change anything about who we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, I don't mean like, uh, man, you know, like we tripped over ourselves and here we are. Um, no, it was a lot of hard work. Um, but I think, I mean, um, there was a lot that attracted us to the Episcopal Church specifically about this diocese. Like there's, you wouldn't think this in Indiana, but the Diocese of Indianapolis has a lot of history of being fairly uh, progressive on social issues. Um, so it's an interesting history. Um, right here in the in the middle of a state that is not known <laughs> uh, for uh, emphasizing, you know, racism and you know uh, those kinds of things. So, I think one of the first women bishops was the was the bishop of the diocese of Indianapolis. It might be am I, am I historian. Uh, bishop Cage, who served from 1997 to 2016, 2017, uh, was the first woman to lead the diocese on her own, and then Bishop Jennifer. So that transition between is the first time in the Anglican Okay. Yeah. 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 And in the world. Yeah. That's it's pretty interesting. So anyway. All right. Let me uh let me pray for us and then we'll uh we'll end today. Creator God, we're thankful for the time that we've had today, and I pray that our, our hearts and our minds uh, will have been illuminated and that through this discussion, you will continue to draw us into your heart, that we could pay closer attention to how you are at work in our lives and participate more deeply in the life that you share with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, y'all. Great start. <laughs>